Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is an economist by training. He joined the European Commission's Directorate General for Competition at the turn of the century. Over the past 20 years, he's held a number of positions enforcing state aid and merger control in the telecoms, financial, pharmaceutical, and chemical sectors. In November 2021, he was appointed to head the DGCOMP Directorate, overseeing antitrust and merger enforcement in the information, communications, and media sectors. And he currently holds one of the most interesting and challenging jobs in town. Since January, he's led the Digital Platforms Directorate that's responsible for overseeing the EU's landmark piece of legislation, the Digital Markets Act. I have pleasure in welcoming Alberto Bacchiega. Alberto, this must be a really fascinating time for you. The first director of the new directorate established to oversee enforcement of perhaps the most significant new regulatory tool introduced by the EU this century, the Digital Markets Act or DMA. I know it's only a couple of years since the first draft of the DMA was proposed and only a few months since the final text was adopted. So to get us going, a few questions. What have you been up to? What have you learned so far? What are your current objectives? And what does success look like in the next few years? Thank you very much, Nick. It's a great pleasure to be on this podcast and to be chatting with you in the in the next few few minutes. So what have we been up to in the in the last year or so? Many things. Of course, we have a new regulation that DG competition is implementing together with DigiConnect. It's, you know, it's the, let's say the fourth pillar for DigiComp. Last time we had a new instrument to to enforce was mergers that was in 1990. So some time has passed by. So I spent a lot of the last year organizing the new team and giving it the shape it has now with the creation of a new directorate that is dedicated to enforcing the DMA, but also to antitrust in the digital sector together with the Directorate C. And so we that has been an, a very interesting and rewarding effort. You have to build the systems, you have to build the team, you have to build the, a little bit the, the corporate identity of, of the team. And on top of that, you have a lot of substance to deal with. So as you as you know, the, the DMA entered into effect a few months ago. We started discussing with potential gatekeepers as soon as we had a stable text of the DMA. So it's been over a year now. But the first important deadline was the notifications of the potential gatekeepers that was early July. And this triggered a 45 period for designation. So this summer, we've been very busy discussing and deciding on which services would be covered by, by the DMA in this first phase. And that concluded early September with the decision to appoint, to designate six gatekeepers for 22 core platform services. So now the next step, the next objective for us is compliance. Basically, we, we said which are the services that need to comply with the DMA. Now we need to ensure compliance. So that's the next phase in the work. Work is growing because for each services, we have many obligations and provisions for which we need to find a good solution. 
but it's a, again very exciting work we are undergoing. Our main objective is to ensure compliance. The deadline is March next year to ensure it in a meaningful, meaningful way. And what will success look like? In the first place, that next spring there will be changes in the way these services operate that make a tangible difference for businesses and for consumers. The consumers have more choice. They really see they are more in control of the devices they use, of the services they use, of their own data, and that businesses have more opportunities to develop their business and to actually also have control about the data they generate on digital platforms. So Alberto, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me start with actually what you said at the end, which I thought was very, very interesting. So you have some intention to really keep track of the extent to which the changes that are introduced as a result of the regulation actually result in change behavior and to judge your success according to that benchmark or series of benchmarks? Yes, of course. And also, we are not the judges there. The judges there are the stakeholders, are the businesses, European businesses and citizens who are due to benefit from the DMA. So we want to see these changes on the ground, but we also want to see the stakeholders understand and have opportunities that can actually size. So that's uh, it's going to be very important for us to receive the feedback from the stakeholders of what has really changed on the ground. We see that there is a lot of interest on what the DMA will allow, and we want to see that it makes a real difference. So, Alberto, you referred to one of the unusual features of the DMA, namely the involvement of two commission directorates, DigiComp and DigiConnect, which some of our listeners may not know is responsible for EU investment in research, innovation, and the development of critical digital technologies. Can you tell us a bit about the roles that officials from each of those directorates play? Do they bring different perspectives? Do you anticipate as a result of this being something of a joint venture that the outcomes are going to be different? So, yes, I mean, it's not a very usual setup in the Commission to have two services co-working on the same project. It has been from inception in the DMA. The Commission proposal actually was elaborated by the two directors general together and was actually the, the legislative process was also done together and the implementation is done together. It's simpler than it sounds at first, because what we have done, we set up a single team. So there is only one DMA team with colleagues from Comp and colleagues from Connect who work seamlessly together. There is only one entry point for external stakeholders, be it gatekeepers or other companies or consumer association, is the DMA team. We have one system, we have one registry, we have one IT system. So basically we do everything together. There is no there is no differentiation. Of course, we bring a different expertise in part. From DigiConnect, there is more experience on the regulatory side. On DigiComp, we have more experience, of course, on competition enforcement. The DMA is regulation, is not competition, but it's heavily inspired by the experience we had in competition practices. There are some areas where we have more expertise, other areas where the Connect has more expertise, and we put it together in common teams. So it's like being in, in the same in Digicomp and saying, for this specific case, 
I really need somebody who knows the sector and somebody who is a good lawyer and a good economist. And you pick and mix and match and you, you get the right team in. We do the same, just we have more opportunity to leverage the knowledge of the two DGs. And how many people are you at the moment and what's the division between lawyers and economists roughly? Here in Comp, uh, the, my directorate has 40 people. In Connect is more or less the same number. The directorate in DigiConnect is enforcing both the DMA and the DSA. We only enforce the DSA at uh, the DMA, sorry. So they are bigger, but they have more, more things to do. So more, we are uh, like, we have a good group of, of lawyers, competition lawyers that joined us. We have a number of economists, I think a bit more than half, probably lawyers, a bit less economists. And we have also some of the very prized and famous data scientists that help us with the more technical aspects. Of course, both in Comp and Connect, we also rely on the, on the help of our horizontal services, like a policy and coordination or the chief economist team whenever necessary, and the same on the Connect side. Thanks, Alberto. So let's turn to the first topic that you alluded to, namely the first part of the exercise that the Act mandated you to engage in, namely the identification of gatekeepers, the companies that will be subject to the DMA. And as you mentioned, in early September, you designated six gatekeepers, Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, and ByteDance. I have a few questions. How straightforward was it to determine which companies should be designated and which should not be? How does the number and the identity of the companies in scope affect how you think about the DMA's goals and your approach to enforcing the new rules? And how are you organizing yourselves by gatekeeper or by types of obligation? So on the first question, how straightforward was it to determine what companies should be designated? The, the structure of the DMA is to provide rather clear indications on the um, the characteristic for companies that are designated as gatekeepers and for what services there are. So the DMA is based on, um, for the quantitative part at least, on presumption based on financial of the company, turnover and market capitalization, on how many business users and end users actually use the platform services that we may designate, and on a measure of how long they have been in this gatekeeping position. So over three years, basically, the DMA says. So these were quite straightforward criteria to apply. Of course, there is always room for, for discussion, how you exactly define a business user, how you exactly define an end user, how you exactly count what is a monthly active user, or a daily active users. These are all concepts that are in the DMA that are pretty straightforward. And there is always some you know, discussion and refinement to be had. What is the right measure? What is the right statistic to use? Another area of discussion, what is, what is the perimeter of, of a core platform service? To make an example, a social network is a core platform service. A video sharing platform is another core platform service. A marketplace is yet third core platform service. So where does the social network stop and where does the video sharing platform start or vice versa? Or is it a marketplace within a social network, part of the social network, or is it a core platform service on its own? Where is the boundary between the consumer-facing service, for example, the short and social network, 
and the advertising service that is again a separate CPS. So we had quite some discussion to right size the boundaries of the of the various services. I think still within the frame, quite clear frame that that the DMA is giving us. But of course, there was also some room for disagreement with the gatekeepers. And um, what I can say is that the final des- the decision we took in September are not really reflecting 100% what the gatekeepers notified back in July, that there has been some discussion in between that. And as soon as we can publish the non-confidential version of the decision, I think the wider public will, will have a better sense of what the main points of discussions were. Through this process, Alberto, you've identified the gatekeepers. I'll come to the core platform services in a second. But how have you decided to organize yourselves by gatekeeper, by core platform service, by type of obligation? Clearly, coordination is going to be essential here. That depends on what we are doing and this changing goes over time. So by gatekeeper is to aggregate it. It's too high level because we need it to go for to the core platform service. So for the designation phase, it was really core platform service gatekeeper. So that would be, let's say, the unit of work because we needed to decide if the core platform service was to be designated or not. Now that we move to the compliance phase, we need to go a bit more granular because for each designated core platform service, there are a number of obligations that apply. The, the DMA lists over 20 between obligations and prohibitions, and some have sub-indents, so that's even more than that. So we now the the case team, let's say our unit of work would be gatekeeper, service, obligation. And that would be the, the basic unit. Sometimes it makes sense to group obli- the same obligation across services for the same gatekeeper, because it's the same, let's say the same issue across. For example, how do you manage personal data? It, it can apply at the same time and they can be follow the same model for the same company across services. And of course, we need to have some coherence for the same company and some coherence across closed platform services. So it's a tri-dimensional matrix, is a kind of cube thing where you can easily get lost because there are so many cells in it. But in, in a way, the secret is, is the oldest recipe of the world which is to keep exchanging, to keep talking and to have moments where, you know, different teams get together. They, we tell each other what we are doing and what the, and what the issues are. And we see what, what issues cut across and where we need to, to ensure coherence. And of course, that is also a little bit my job and the job of management to keep this coherence together, of course, together with our counterparts in DigiConnect. So if you're Amazon, to take an example, you know your team and you work with your team to try to work through the obligations, and we'll be coming to those in a second. Yes. So Amazon, we designated for two core platform services, and there are some issues across the two core platform services, but there are some specific obligations for specific core platform service. So we will have the team and we will dialogue with Amazon and with any other gatekeeper specifically on each on each case yes so let's turn to the core platform services uh, just as a reminder to listeners the dma applies a dual designation framework where the commission designates both gatekeepers and core platform services and the main rules apply to core platform services that are operated by 
gatekeepers. And there's a nice diagram, organogram in the uh, September 2023 press release that shows all of the uh, core platform services, which are organized it quite interestingly, I thought, not by gatekeeper, but by social network or by ads or by browser and so forth. But I wanted to ask you about a couple of types of uh, services that don't seem to have been included. Uh, the first is there don't appear to be any virtual assistants or, or cloud computing services, I guess, because the thresholds uh, weren't met. Can you give us any insight into the Commission's thinking about those types of services? Yeah. So, first of all, you're right. I mean, neither virtual assistants nor cloud computing services have been designated. The whether the thresholds are met are in the first is in the first place a responsibility of the company to do the self-assessment if, if the thresholds are met. Of course, we had discussion with all companies whether they were met or not. Um, so, let's say the potential gatekeepers in this area considered that their service don't meet the thresholds, and that's why they did not notify. Quantitative designation is one option to designate services. That's what the 22 services did. There is another option that is what we call the qualitative designation. And this is for services that do not meet the thresholds, but for which we think still they are an important gateway between business users and end users. So for this, we can start a market investigation. They get, the DMA gives us a 12-month period to conclude it. And then if you know we find that they're really an important gateway, then we can designate them nevertheless. It's also the fact that we opened only one such market investigation earlier in September, and this was on the operating system for the iPad of Apple. So we have not open market investigation, neither on virtual assistance or on cloud services. We, you know, it's always possible that we will do in the future. Of course, I cannot announce what we will do in the future. That is, um, as we usually do, when we take a step, then we make a public announcement that. But of course, we are in this category where we will monitor in this situation and we will see if and when is the right moment to start a qualitative investigation. The other possibility is that services that don't yet meet the threshold, they grow in a way that they do meet the thresholds. And I don't know if, you know, if that is the case for virtual assistance or cloud computing services, but we expect new notifications early next year. As we will be in 24, it will be data. We will look at data from 23, 22, 21. Data from 2020 will not be relevant anymore. So whatever changes brings, and uh, it may it may bring us to new notification and new designations as well. So you've answered a question, Alberto. I was going to ask, which is how often this process of identifying gatekeepers and core platform services takes place. This the the law anticipates it will take place every year. So a bit like painting Sydney Bridge. When you finish, you begin again. Yeah, it's not necessarily every year. But again, is the is the is the obligation of the companies to self-assess and to see if they meet the thresholds. Once they meet the threshold, they have a two-month period to to notify that they meet the threshold. So of course, the turn of the year is an important moment because it's when you look at the data from the previous year. But it could be also during the year. I think for us, the way we see it, September was a little bit 
a big bang moment because we have, you know, the DMA is new. Digital markets have been there for a couple of decades, a bit more. And so we, we kind of cleared everything that has happened up to today. And from today to today onwards will be more run of the mill. We will have a number of cases of new cases per year, certainly not 22 in one go. It will be more gradual from now on. So I'd like to ask a question about the obligations, which I guess are the core of the act. In devising the DMA, the EU elected to have an ex-ante system of regulation that's based largely on prescribed do's and don'ts. And some have said that's somewhat static and some other authorities have been empowered with regulatory rules that allow them, they would say in a somewhat more dynamic way, to develop company-specific codes of conduct that can be regularly updated as as markets and practices evolve. I know it's early days, uh, but do you think the EU made the right election? Uh, Now you've got your head in the weeds, if you like. Are there things you'd like to do a bit differently? I think that indeed the construction of the DMU is to have a clear list of criteria and of services that, that, that are covered by the DMA. I think this is a very legitimate choice. I think we could do it because in particular in Europe, we have had 20 plus year of experience in enforcing competition rules in the digital sector. And all this experience has also given a clear idea of what issues are of systemic nature and what issues actually endanger fairness and contestability in the digital markets. So with all this experience, we could actually devise a law which is very clear on who is addressed by this law and what are the obligations. Of course, one can say this is more rigid than another system and to some extent is new, but it's also more transparent and more directly applicable. There is, of course, a different route, which is we don't say much uh, in the law itself, but we just put in the law the frame under which investigation will be done under which companies will be actually designated as being important, systemic, gatekeepers, whatever the the name chosen is. And then there can be a more bespoke set of obligations that applies to each company. This system is more flexible. It's also more time-consuming, I would argue, because you need to investigate, for example, if the company needs to be designated, and then you need to start more or less from zero to say, okay, then what obligations apply? So there is an element of trade-off between directness, predictability, transparency, and flexibility. Of course, the jury is out yet because we haven't seen the impact of the DMA, and we will not see it for a few more months. So I think next year will be a good moment to, you know, to take stock and to say, is the DMA successful? To me, the, the other element that is very important is that whether one system is used or the other system is used may depend also on the legal tradition. We have continental legal tradition that probably is more prescriptive. And for example, the UK are choosing a different system, which reminds me a little bit the debate that we've had for decades on financial regulation, where the same type of uh, different nuances has always existed between common law and the continental law. But the aim is exactly the same. And what is important to us is that within our specific system, 
we can actually work together to achieve the same result. And on that, I'm absolutely confident that it is possible. But one of the other areas that's not covered is generative AI. And although they were thought about maybe at the time the DMA was adopted, they've, they've really entered the mainstream of public consciousness in an extraordinary way in the last year or two. What's the Commission's current thinking about generative AI tools and whether and if so, how they might fit into the DMA? But this is an extremely important development and we see you know, new features being rolled out on a weekly basis. So it is it's true there is no specific mention of generative AI in the DMA. Actually, when the Commission proposed, I think it's from December 2020, I don't think the name was known beyond most techie experts in, around the globe. But it's something that the DMA has the flexibility to look, to look into. So to the extent that the generative AI is a technological tool that is developed and rolled out within core platform services in the DMA, of course, the obligations apply. And, and, uh, and, of, and of course, we, we can take it into account. Um, to the extent that you know, generative AI becomes a platform service on its own, and I don't, I don't see yet this happening, but if it ever happened, we could start a market investigation and propose a targeted, targeted extension of the DMA to cover also generative AI. So this is for the DMA side. But I think a bit a broader point that I would like to make here is that we shouldn't see the DMA in isolation. The DMA is a regulatory tool that is complementary to competition enforcement. And competition enforcement will still be there and will still give us a lot of insight on what is happening on the ground with um, a rigor and the type of assessment that is very sophisticated. So in, in particular, it will go into what is the right market definition for a specific service, something that the DMA doesn't do, what is the specific conduct we are looking at? What is the theory of harm? What is the impact of it? So it's very different from the DMA philosophy, but it's complementary to the DMA philosophy. And what I would like to, to say is that for a phenomenon that is new, for which the systemic effect has not yet been proven, I think the most suitable tool is the competition tool that is more in-depth, and they can really look at the specific conduct and the specific issues in specific situations. And if it turns out through this experience that there is a systemic issue that requires ex-ante regulation, then this should be added to the regulatory tool. But I would not jump into regulating a la DMA, whatever comes as a, as a new phenomenon which doesn't mean that we don't want to regulate artificial intelligence or, or generative artificial intelligence. I'm talking more about the economic side of it, what the DMA covers. As we all know, there is an Artificial Intelligence Act that is being debated right now in the Council and Parliament, which regulates very important aspects of AI and generative AI, but that are more on the safety and uh, side and not so much linked to economic phenomena, which is what we look at into, with the DMA. Thanks, Alberto. I'll turn to Article uh, 102 in a second, um, but just staying on the obligations that 
uh, the the companies, the gatekeepers that are subject to the designations are going to be subject to the September designation decisions started the gun, if you like, for the DMA's main obligations to come into effect. Um, So you're a month or so into that. How straightforward is it proving to interpret what seem to me to be rather broadly framed principles set out in the DMA? Do you anticipate producing uh, guidance when this is all over so that um, future gatekeepers, future services can understand the principles you've applied? And and although it's early days, what advice would you give to companies that are caught by the uh, DMA, as well as by third parties, who may have an interest in the way in which the obligations are being interpreted and applied. So, as you say, Nick, we have really started the, let's say, the, the very intense compliance discussions. We started discussing compliance with gatekeepers several months ago, but now is occupying basically 80% of, a bit less because also we have market investigation, but a big chunk of our time. I think the provisions are quite clear in the DMA, the the aims of the DMA are very clear. Translating these into concrete changes for each service and for each gatekeeper, that of course requires really looking into the in-depth where they are now, where they need to get, and what, what needs to be modified. Again, the burden of proof is on the gatekeepers. It's for the gatekeepers to comply. So we are telling gatekeepers, you come with a solution that is compliant. Of course, you know you come first with the concept. We discuss the concept. We agree on the concept. Then we go one level down. We discuss really the implementation. This is very intense work that has just started. Uh, difficult to judge how difficult it will be between now and March. But I think we are we are off to a good start. One advice we keep giving to gatekeepers, uh, so I don't think any of them will be surprised now, is don't think. This is a bilateral discussion with the commission. With any solution that the gatekeepers propose, must be a solution that works with businesses and with the end users. So it's very important that these solutions are actually tested with businesses, with end users. The DMA gives us quite some flexibility on how to do the test, and we can tailor it to the specific audience or stakeholders, to the specific issue we are trying to address, and so forth. But solutions that are cooked between Brussels and wherever in you know, California or anywhere, in, anywhere else in the world, I think they will, by necessity, not be good solutions. Now, we, of course, don't want to have a bad solution. Gatekeepers, I think, don't want to have a bad solution either because a solution that doesn't work is a solution that needs to be changed. And we understand that the, the DMA is imposing important constraints on gatekeepers in terms of resources, both you know, in terms of capital and in terms of human resources. So it's better to get it right than to do it twice or three times. And if there was one thing, you know, we keep repeating and we, 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 we never get tired of telling to stakeholders outside the gatekeepers is to get involved in their process. If they think they could benefit from a more open ecosystem environment that we would have more freedom actually to test new ideas for businesses and innovative services or for consumers to have more choice, now is the moment to get involved because it's the moment where we can really change things. We will do our best to reach out to stakeholders 
And we are really, really grateful for all the stakeholders that come and see us and tell us what they are expecting from the DMA. You know, sometimes it sounds more and more of a daunting task to deliver on that, but to the extent we can, they can rest assured that this is our ultimate goal. So, Alberto, it sounds like you have a system of ex-ante regulation, but ex-post monitoring in order to see what the results are, with the possibility, perhaps, to encourage companies to change the way they, in good faith, have complied with the obligations in an effort to drive a result, perhaps, that might be more consistent with your definition of success. Is that too cynical an interpretation of what you say or foresee? No, actually, in the DMA, there is an obligation of result. So the, the, the goal of the DMA is to improve fairness and contestability in digital markets, and it's a regulatory tool. So perhaps unlike you know, the, the type of competition enforcement discussion we are used to, where you, you negotiate the remedies, and once the remedies are done, we all uh, revolves around the interpretation of the remedy. There is some room for optimization. There could be conflict resolution and like that, but basically the remedy is fixed for the next five, 10 years, whatever it is. The regulatory tool by necessity can keep updating itself. And for, for several reasons, eh? one might be that the initial solution doesn't work as we expected. Another might be that the markets evolve, and these markets evolve very quickly, so we need to adapt the solution to the evolution of the market. And the third possibility is that they keep gatekeepers themselves, they factor in the regulation, and they change their model in order sometimes to go the old way, while in new ways achieve what they were achieving before, and so there we will certainly feel free to find new solution when we see there is new behavior on the side of gate. Do you anticipate giving the gatekeepers an idea of what you mean by success so that they have something to aim at? Yes, we I mean quantitatively it's we could we can do it for certain obligations, but certainly it's something that will be part of the dynamic element here. So we will want to measure if there are obligations relating, you know, to take interoperability. If you know we have a solution to allow more interoperability with operating systems, and then we start getting feedback from stakeholders who say, this doesn't help me at all, because in theory it works, but actually the protocols or the APIs, in theory they are open, in reality I cannot do my job because I have this block and block, this will be a measure that we need to change something. Conversely, if we start seeing that new things are happening, that will be our measure of success. One example, we one, another goal that we have for the DMA is to allow alternative app stores, for example, for uh, mobile devices, for all devices, but in particular for mobile, a measure of success is that, are there new app stores? Is there a new offer? Is there a differentiation of the offer? Is, so that for us, it will also be a measure of, a measure of success. So in respect of, let's say, an objective to create more choice, if consumers just decide they don't like the choice, they're quite happy with the incumbent, in a sense, they've complied with the obligation and then you move on, or do you try to explore additional ways to nudge choice, let's say, away from the incumbent? If we knew that is, you know, sincerely the, the fact that the consumers like the what the, the offer of the incumbent is, I think that would be absolutely fine. The DMA, the very existence of the DMA is because we are convinced that 
that there is no choice and that no choice is possible. And that because the choice is limited by behavior of the incumbents that make alternative offers, either copycats of what they do, or simply not reaching consumers. So if we if we had a, another, another, let's say more choice, nobody picking up this choice, we will still have the question, is it really a, a free choice of the consumer to stick with what they have, or is it something that prevents them from doing it? Just to give you, you know, an obvious example, if I if I can choose between the incumbent service and the service of a, a new service from a competitor, also very appealing or a better proposition or whatever it is, and I have to go through six screens before accessing the service of the of the of the competitor, five of them warn me about the horrible things that will happen to my device if I click yes, of course, people will choose to stay with the incumbent, but that's not a free choice. Alberto, you talked about the way that Article 102 would operate as a complementary form of, um, of enforcement. How do you expect that to operate in practice, particularly given how long 102 cases can often take? So basically... That's something we've been thinking through from the very beginning, eh? from when we knew that the DMA uh, comes in. We see the DMA and antitrust enforcement, Article 102, as complementary instruments. As I mentioned earlier, for new phenomena, for new theories of harm, for bespoke conducts, certainly we think 102 is the, is the right tool. It's true that it's uh, cumbersome, the, the level and the depth of the of what we need to demonstrate is so high and sometimes the procedure is is also quite heavy that it doesn't make it you know the most immediate tool but still conceptually is the best tool and if anything we can improve on on the way it works and i think that's something that is not in my in my portfolio but as you know we launched a big reflection on the reform of uh, regulation. What is clear is that the, the scope of application of the DMA is well-defined. It's only for certain company. Now we have six, no one else for the moment. It's within this company is for certain core platform services, not all what the companies do. And with for the core platform services is for certain obligations. So there is so much that is not covered by the DMA, and there is where we think the competition tool, Article 102, is the right tool. Because the distinctive factor between 102 and the DMA, the DMA covers where we have sufficient confidence that we have systemic issues that are better addressed by regulation. The DMA is not there to substitute 102 at all. Now, there are clearly all sorts of differences between the DMA and 102, one of them being, as you of course know, 102 requires a showing that the challenged conduct harmed or was capable of harming competition and gives companies the uh, possibility to defend practices as being objectively justified. Are you troubled that the DMA doesn't have the, the same kind of defense possibilities? Are you concerned that in dynamic markets with new business models and types of conduct emerging all the time, that enforcement may stifle innovation? Actually, not at all. On the one hand, as I just said, what, what the DMA does is to tackle systemic issues for which we have sufficiently 
confident that there is proof that they were hindering fairness and contestability. So to, and that's exactly why we don't need to show effects, because we did show effects at the, at the, systemic, the systemic level. And regarding innovation, I think one of the main goals of innovation of the DMA is actually to foster innovation. And I think we, we should get out from a concept where the only innovation can come from gatekeepers. Gatekeepers are great innovation. They have been great innovators in the past. They've been disruptive. Gatekeepers have also grown in being incumbents, in, in controlling ecosystems. And they keep innovating within the, their ecosystem, which is absolutely fine. But we are also convinced that if these ecosystems are must have, also other companies that could innovate in different ways, in, a, in, you know, in more innovative way, in ways that we are not imagining now, they cannot do it because they risk challenging the ecosystem. And that, that cannot happen today. So we think that DMA will open the market for more innovation directly from challengers and also from the gatekeepers themselves. Because as we all know, the best you know, incentive to innovate is for some competitors that may be quicker than you. You referred to the merger regulation as the last major piece of regulation in the, in the antitrust in, enforcement area. As you know well, it unleashed a process where pretty much every country with a flag adopted a merger control regime of its own with an awful lot of uh, duplication and a risk of inconsistency. And we're beginning to see uh, quite a number of countries now adopt their own digital regulatory regimes. How do you see the interaction between the Commission and those other regulators? Obviously, you have something of a first mover advantage, but other systems are getting going, some similarly scoped, some differently scoped. Are you more concerned by duplication or by inconsistency? Um, I think that we need to distinguish perhaps within the European Union, EA, and, uh, and internationally. So within the European Union, the raison d'etre of the DMA is approximation of law. That's also the legal basis under which it has, it has been conceived. So what we have done in Europe is to have one coherent regime to regulate digital platforms. Some member states have their own regime, but what is clear also within the DMA, that what is being regulated within the DMA is regulated at the EU level. There might be some further obligations or some further steps that are taken at national level. But the DMA is, first of all, a big harmonization tool in the European Union. Of course, as for antitrust, that is enforced both at EU level and nationally, we need to coordinate. We need to divide you know, the work in a way that actually avoids duplications, but actually is more effective is a work that we have undertaken. We are leveraging a lot what we already have, which is the European Competition Network that we use heavily also for the DMA. And uh, I'm sure we will be able to do that. I think for me, the main consideration is that, you know, if we duplicate, we make a big, big favors to the company that we are trying to regulate. We simply don't have the capacity and the resources to do that. And whenever I talk to colleagues in National Competition Authority, I think there is one thing we immediately agree on, is that we have very, very few resources and that we have to use them efficiently. 
moving outside Europe, uh, of course, the DMA is a regulation that applies only to Europe. We have no intention whatsoever to regulate companies outside our jurisdiction, even though we hear that concern and that allegation sometimes, but that is really, really not the case. And that as for any law instrument, we may have different approaches. What is important is that the enforcer and the regulators talk and aim at the same goal. And that we do in competition proceedings, and we will do ozone proceedings where we apply the DMA in Europe, we do regulation in Europe and another jurisdiction does competition enforcement, or we apply regulation and another, another, um, another jurisdiction also regulates. That, you know, we have our channels. Again, we are leveraging a lot the channels we have established over many decades with many other jurisdictions, especially those that are more like-minded. And we will continue to leverage that and try and strive to have solutions that are coherent. Alberto, you've been terribly generous with your time. A few quick fire questions to end it. What advice would you give to a new regulator setting him or herself up in the digital space? Oh God, I don't know. I'm more recipient of advice. I'm the, I'm the new regulator, so I'm not yet at the stage of of giving advice. But if anybody has, I'm uh, very happy to to have a chat. <laughs> and I, you'll probably say it's too early, but I'll try it anyway. If you could make one change to the DMA based on what you've seen so far, what would it be? It's a bit self-serving, but there is, you know, in, whenever there is a regulation, there is also an annex that says how many people you need to to enforce that regulation and it says how many headcount basically you have. And then we put a number and I think we quickly realized that the number was a little bit too, you know, too parsimonious. So I, I would love to put a bigger number there. Also because from the initial commission proposal, the final text of the regulation, we added core platform services and we made it even stricter. So if I could change something, I would change that. So you've not entirely left the world of antitrust enforcement. It's recent enough for you to um, have a view on my next quickfire question, I think. If you could change one thing about the EU enforcement regime, what would it be? By, you know, in a dream world, we would have less process and more on, uh, on substance. And of course, I'm fully aware that process is there to guarantee the rights, you know, of defense and the due, the due process. We are very clear with that. But um, yeah, at heart, I am a, I'm a merger guy. I spent many years doing mergers, so I I really like the speed of the of the tool. And uh, many things are possible in mergers, also because it needs to go fast. And of course, it needs to go fast because everybody wants to get to the conclusion, the parties to the merger in the first place. So I don't have the magic wand to say how to translate that in a one or two context. But I think that if with the revision of the, you know, the reflection on Reg 1, if we can achieve a way to collaborate fruitfully between the parties and the enforcers, that, that would be very welcome. Alberto, my final question, your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? Proudest achievement is uh, not, I cannot have a proudest achievement on digital and related to the DMA yet. It's too too early. So if we redo this in a year and a half time, maybe maybe I have something to say there. Now but it's a merger case of a few years ago between two pharma companies about oncology and drugs and 
we looked in particular on melanoma drugs and we found in the course of the investigation that they would discontinue one research project on a particular drug to cure a melanoma. And we, you know, we, we asked for a remedy, we got the remedy. This research project was sold to another company that a few years after, when we had moved on big time, the drug went to the market and not only it was competing with the incumbent from the merging parties, but also it was catering for specific types of the melanoma that no other drug could do. And, uh, you know, I'm um, fully conscious that I've done absolutely nothing to make that project succeed other than letting it continue. And, uh, you know, all the merit goes, of course, to the doctors and uh, all the people who worked really on it. But just knowing that we helped that reaching the market and reaching patients is still something I like to think about. And uh, yeah, I regret perhaps not to have had a spell in the private sector before joining before the commission. I jumped straight from academia to Digicomp where I've been very happy for the past 23 years, but I still, I would like to know how it feels to work in a company, you know, in the private sector. And that's probably for uh, the next life. Well, I'll bet you've uh, time still and you know how to reach us when the time comes. Thank you very much for a fascinating podcast. It's an extraordinary time in the world of digital regulation and you're clearly enjoying it a lot. I hope we can check back in with you in a year or two to see how you're doing, uh, whether you've succeeded on, in the way that you uh, hope to. But for today, thank you very much, Alberto. I'm Nick Levy. I've been your host today and look forward to welcoming you to the next edition of the Antitrust Review. Thank you.